We can turn with me your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4. Someone suggested that my first week back I should redo stuff, and they asked for Ecclesiastes, so I obliged. So uh, Ecclesiastes, chapter 4. I miss that depressing book. I miss how encouraging it is. And so it's a good to be in Ecclesiastes again this evening. So we're going to look at the entire chapter of chapter 4, uh, The Toil of Rivalry. I'll begin reading at verse 1. Then I returned and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. And look, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. On the side of their oppressors there is power, but they have no comforter. Therefore I praise the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still alive. Yet better than both is he who has never existed, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Again, I saw that for all toil and every skillful work a man is envied by his neighbor. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. Better a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. Then I returned and saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone without companion. He has neither son nor brother, yet there is no end to all his labors, nor is his eye satisfied with riches. But he never asks, for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This also is vanity and a grave misfortune. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who will be admonished no more. For he comes out of prison to be king, although he was born poor in his kingdom. I saw all the living who walk under the sun. They were with the second youth who stands in his place. There is no end of all the people over whom he has made king. Yet those who come afterward will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Amen. Well, let us pray. O oh Lord our God, we know that there is much rivalry. We know that there's much oppression. We know that there is much loneliness uh, in this world, O oh Lord. And yet we are thankful that you're the one uh, who is the one who comforts your people. That though we walk this world alone, though we receive persecution from others, we know, O oh Lord our God, that you're the one who is with us day by day. And so thank you for that comfort that we can have. We confess so often sometimes we are still perplexed by the things that are going on in this world. We have your word, we believe your word, we trust your word, yet so often we can doubt, so often we can be perplexed, so often we can see the conundrums of this world and be confused. And so we are thankful we can come and be reminded in your word that we can find our hope and strength in you that we can fear you above all things, that you're the God uh, who created this world and you're the God who guides all things by your providence. So thank you for that comfort that your people have day by day. Thank you for that encouragement your people have day by day, that you're the God who governs all things for your glory, but for our good. And so help us to wrestle with the tensions we face in this world. Help us to put our faith and trust in you. And whatever suffering, whatever oppression, whatever difficulty we endure in this present age, may it teach us uh, to love you more. May it teach us to rely upon you more. For so often we are prideful and arrogant, thinking we can do things our own ways. And yet we know that we need you to help us day by day. So we ask that tonight you'd give your people some encouragement. Uh, as we walk this world, help us to know your nearness. Help us to know that we truly have a friend in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. 
And we pray that we would be encouraged by this truth and by this reality. We pray there are any here today who do not know you, please save their souls and they will face pain and suffering in this world. Yet we pray that they would find mercy and uh, forgiveness and they would find encouragement and the promise of life everlasting in the one who is son. Help them to believe, give them the gift of faith, we pray. And we pray in all things you would be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, some people think it would be wonderful if we did everything in this present age with a pure motive. It would be wonderful if we didn't do everything uh, out of envy or out of some sort of rivalry. But the reality is in this fallen present evil age, do we ever do anything with a pure motive? The desire to do things with a pure motive is unattainable even for the people of God because we still struggle with much remaining corruption. More than we would like to admit it, we do things out of rivalry. We do things out of envy. We do things uh, out of competition with other people. Someone reads two good theological books. We want to read four theological books. Someone has this car. We want a better car. Someone lifts more than you. You want to lift more than them. And all these things aren't necessarily a bad thing. But when we do it out of rivalry, we can see how wicked and desperately wicked man truly is. When we do things out of rivalry, even our jobs... It is grasping at the wind. Now, remember, this book is all about grasping at the wind. This book is all about enigmas. This is all about vanity of vanities. We see the main motto in Ecclesiastes 1, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, or enigma of enigmas, all is enigma. And then we have the main question, what profit is there uh, uh, for a man in all in which he labors under the sun? What profit is there for man in this present world in which he lives? This is the preacher's quest. This is what Solomon is seeking uh, in this book. And I do believe it is written by Solomon, perhaps after uh, he turned away, but then he repented, he comes back. And so this is probably towards the end of his life. And he's reflecting uh, on his entire life and he's imparting wisdom. He's wanting to teach his younger self all about the world in which he lives. And I do think the book of Ecclesiastes is all about wrestling with inconsistencies. I believe we need to read Ecclesiastes with Proverbs and we need to read Ecclesiastes with Job. Typically, there is if you do good, you'll receive good. If you do evil, you'll receive evil. But then we live in a fallen world and there are inconsistencies. And so Ecclesiastes gives us nuance. Job teaches us glad consecration when things don't always go our way. So we need Proverbs. Proverbs, but we need Ecclesiastes and we need Job uh, as we deal with this fallen world in which we live, because the reality is life is just not fair. There's a lot of sadness. There's a lot of sorrow. There's a lot of difficulty. And thankfully, the Bible tells us that we're going to have to deal with that in this present age. And the section we are in focus on time and purpose. In chapter three, there is that poem of time. There is a purpose for everything. The preacher said God makes everything beautiful in its time. And then in chapter three, verse 16, we see how he sees that there uh, at the place of judgment in the courts, there is wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. Then the place you think there should be justice and the place you think there should be righteousness, there is wickedness. It is madness. It is enigma. It is perplexity. But the preacher then says, I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. God makes everything beautiful in its time. Well, what then about oppression? 
What then about rivalry? What then about friendship? What then about government? So these questions have been raised, and these are questions the preacher is going to seek to answer. And the problem is very clear in chapter 4, and that is the problem of rivalry, envy, arrogance that leads to oppression and loneliness. The sad reality is humans oppress other humans. I know the Bible says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. But how is that manifested? It is manifested as we have to deal with other people, as we have to deal with sinful people. And even as the Bible unfolds throughout the entirety of redemptive history, we see there is the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And there is enmity between the two throughout generations. So much so that Jesus says to the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. And the reason that humans oppress one another is out of rivalry and envy. And even sometimes God's people do good things with wrong motives. And so in Ecclesiastes 4, the preacher wants us to see the sorrow that rivalry and envy bring. If we're only ever doing things out of competition, only ever doing things out of selfish ambition, it's only ever going to bring sorrow and sadness. And the common thread uh, throughout this chapter is rivalry and oppression. And so we'll look at this under three headings this evening. First of all, we'll see there is no comfort for the oppressed, verses 1 through 3. Secondly, we'll see no companion for the selfish, verses 4 through 12. And then lastly, no praise for the wise in verses 13 through 16. So first we'll see no comfort for the oppressed. Then we'll see no companion for the selfish. Then lastly, we'll see no praise for the wise. So let's first look at no comfort for the oppressed in verses 1 through 3. And notice how he considers oppression in verse 1. And the context is in and around this idea of injustice. What we saw in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 3. And so he says in verse 1, Then I returned and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. Now I know oppression is a loaded term in our modern context. It really just refers to human beings treating other humans like dogs. Other humans treating other humans like they are nothing. Humans uh, crushing like people in power who perhaps crush the peasants. That goes against creation. It goes against the recognition that man is made in God's image. Uh, It goes against what the Proverbs say. Proverbs 14, 31, Solomon says, He who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker, but he who honors him has mercy on the needy. And then again in Proverbs 22, 16, He who oppresses the poor to increase his riches, and he who gives to the rich will surely come to poverty. And then there's also uh, Proverbs 28, 3. I know I'm going through these quickly, just drop them down. Uh, a poor man who oppresses the poor is like driving a driving rain, which leaves no food. So Proverbs 14, 31, 22, 16, and 28, 3. And especially that first one, one who does engages in oppression, reproaches his maker. But yet it still happens in the world in which we live. So how are we supposed to deal with it in this present age? Well, notice we see that injustice seems to prevail. Much like we saw in verse 16 of chapter 3, we see here in chapter 4 that injustice seems to prevail. And sometimes there isn't much we can do about it, is there? And notice he even says, and look, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. On this side of their oppressors, there is power, but they have no comforter. 
Sometimes wicked people can prevail for a very long time. And that is hard for the people of God. Even though we believe in providence, we believe God is sovereign. That still is difficult for the people of God. Why is it that this tyrant reigns forever? Why is it Manasseh, the worst king, reigns 55 years and Josiah dies very quickly? Why do these things happen? Now, Ecclesiastes 3 helps us. God makes everything beautiful in its time. But... It's, there's still a lot of hard things we have to observe. Remember, he's observing the things that are going on in this world. He understands the way in which this present world works. It's what he sees. He sees that the, uh, the, the oppressed have no comfort. He sees that the power is with the side of those who have money and who have power. And oppression can spread far and wide. It's not just the courtroom, although certainly that is in view with what we see in chapter 3. There are many show trials that happen around the world. There are many, uh, many, uh, many Christians who uh, um, don't have a fair trial. That's the reality in this present world. We think the place of justice, the courts, uh, would be a place of righteousness, but in reality, a lot of leaders want to uh, throw, have a quick trial to throw their enemies into prison very quickly. So there's the abuse of the legal system. Uh, he eventually talks about that in chapter five as well, how there's bureaucracy, how there's official after official. There's all these things that happen uh, in this present world. And as much as that's a depressing thing, it gives us comfort. It gives us an explanation for the world in which we live, doesn't it? Why are there corrupt politicians? Because the world is filled with sin and wickedness. And we shouldn't be surprised when there are corrupt politicians. We should almost be more surprised when there are good politicians. And if there are good politicians, we should try to get them in uh, as quickly as possible. But that usually doesn't happen. Why? Because power is on the side of the oppressors. And so it, the, this idea of abuse and oppression spreads far and wide. And sometimes, and especially for God's people, we have to understand we may not get relief right away. We have to understand that, dear brethren, don't we? We're going to have relief when Christ comes back or when we die, but it could be a very long time. There could be a lot of sorrow and pain that we have to deal with, and we might not be delivered, dear brethren, from that. We have to be ready to endure. And as we talked about this morning, the way in which we triumph is through and by way of suffering. And as we're going through the book of Hosea, Lord willing, we'll turn to Hosea or return to Hosea next week, uh, talking with a brother a couple weeks ago about what, what about the saints? What about the remnant? What about those who are there? Well, remember, brethren, the saints in Israel had to watch Jerusalem burn, didn't they? They had to watch uh, Samaria go. The 7,000 did not bow the knee to Baal. Even Israel was being wicked, and yet there was a faithful remnant. They had to go through it all. And the promises aren't just for us, Emmanuel, the promise of the branch who would come. and the st It was for the people going into captivity. The true remnant who are walking along, being carried along by hooks by Assyria. It was the promise that Emmanuel would come. But the point is, God's people might go through much oppression and we might cry, um, uh, shed many tears, but we still have a comforter we can rely upon day by day. But humanly speaking, as he's observing the world and seeing what's going on, it seems that the power is on the side of the oppressor. And so if that's the case, 
He gives us some better than sayings. There are four better than sayings throughout Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And the first thing he basically says, it's better not to be born. But first he talks about the dead. Verse 2. Therefore I praise the dead who are already dead, more than the living who are still alive. Now we know what happens when we die. But remember, he's speaking from a human sensory perspective. He sees all the toil, he sees all the sin and misery that is in this world, and he sees a sleeping friend, one who has died, and they look peaceful when they're lying there, don't they? And so humanly speaking, it's better to die than to live with all the sadness and sorrow that is in this world in which we live. I praise the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still Alive. No, we're not promoting suicide here, but he's vividly describing the oppression, vanity, and toil that occurs in this world, isn't he? He wants to awake us. He wants us to see. He wants us to pay attention. It is better to be dead than to be alive. But there's something that it's better than being dead and being alive. You know what that is? It's better to have never existed. <laughs> Verse 3. Yet better than both is he who has never existed, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. What a bitter assessment of this present age, isn't it? What a bitter reminder of this world in which we live, dear brethren. Now, God made the world. God made it good. God guides us and keeps us and protects us. There's a lot of good things. However, there is a lot of sadness, isn't there? And social media doesn't help. You know, there was a time where you really didn't know what happened outside of your town. I think that was a good thing. Were we meant to know what's happen happening around the world, like, now, if you want to figure it out, you just Google it. There it is. What's it? Are we meant to know all that so quickly? I don't know that our brains were meant to, you know, take in all that information that is uh, that, that uh, with respect to what is going on in the world around us. And so I appreciate the tension. I appreciate the enigma for one who has never been born, has never seen the wickedness in this world. He has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. And even Job curses the day he was born, doesn't he? In Job chapter three, he curses his being brought into this world because it is full of so much sadness and sorrow in this present age. There is no comfort for the oppressed, but it's good to be encouraged too, isn't it? Sorry, I'm going to depress you. And then we'll talk about encouraging things. Thankfully, dear brethren, we have a God who comforts us, doesn't he? We're going to go through discomfort. Our God tells us that. But he's going to be with us through that discomfort, isn't he? But he's also going to deliver us from that discomfort when Christ comes again. It's comforting to know the truth. Sometimes we just want an explanation for the why the world is unfair. And Ecclesiastes gives us that. Why is it that people want to kill other people? Why is it there is toil in this well? There's perplexity and unfairness and wickedness because of sin in this world. But yet the people of God have a God we can fear. The people of God have a God we can look to. That's why he ends the book with fear God and keep his commandments. That's our lot in life. That's God's plan for your life. Just do what you're supposed to do. We can't control tomorrow. Jesus says we aren't supposed to worry about tomorrow because uh, we don't know what today will bring. We just need to do what God has called us to do. Do And even in the discomfort, God gives us much comfort. And this discomfort will end. Chapter 317, I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. We know that Christ shall come again. Christ shall 
uh, um, judge the living and the dead. And those who have not believed upon him, those who've oppressed the people of God, they shall receive their due. And those who've been redeemed by Christ and find mercy in him, they shall be with him world without end in eternal bliss where he shall wipe away every tear. Christ is our comforter, 1 John 2, and the Holy Spirit is our comforter, John 14. We have two comforters who give us comfort in this world in which we live. Our God is the one who comforts us. So some might have no comfort. The oppressed might have no comfort, but the people of God always have comfort in our God who is sovereign. So that's no comfort for the oppressed. Let's then look at no companion for the selfish in verses 4 through 12. No companion for the selfish. And notice the toil of rivalry. Why do men labor? Labor, chapter 1, 3. Well, it is out of envy. I saw for all toil and every skillful work, a man is envied by his neighbor. Labor is good, but it can be abused in many ways. Rivalry, idleness, and covetousness, and all of them come up again, uh, come up for us in these verses. And as I started the sermon, rivalry so often pervades what we do. Even godly things, we have this desire to outshine others. Come on, you never walk into another church and start comparing that church with your church. You never start thinking as you go and listen to other preachers if you're a preacher and one and nitpicking at what they're doing and wondering if they're better or not than you and thinking really that never happens. You never think that way. You never look at other people and look at how they look and the things that they have. And you, you never want what they never seriously, you guys are looking at me like, I don't know. Like you guys never, is it just me today that, that struggles with that sort of thing? There's never any rivalry. That guy has more. I want to have more than him. That guy works hard. I want to work harder than him. That, I mean, look at it. A skillful work. A man is envied by his neighbor. That's why he works hard. Brethren, I think I told you when I preached this before at seminary as we were doing the preaching classes all these guys coming to be pastors and we're all like griping about grades and then wondering who was the best preacher of everybody that was there brethren it is ingrained in us we have this remaining corruption we have this competition we want to be the best in every sort of way we have this desire to outshine others even in good things this also is vanity and grasping for the wind. But then on the flip side, there's the problem of idleness. You see, the fool cannot nuance. One who is wise can nuance. One who is wise can sift through all the issues. And so perhaps what could be happening in verses 5 and 6 is with verse 4, well, work only leads to envy. I'm just not going to work at all. And so it leads to idleness. Verse 5, the fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. Maybe it's best not to do anything at all. And we see the image of self-cannibalism. He consumes his own flesh. And this does square with Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter 6, speaking about slumbering and laziness. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. So work only leads to rivalry and envy and not doing anything only leads to death. Well, 
Verse 6, the second of our better than statements in this, in, this, in this chapter. Better a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. It's better to have a little rather than a lot. It's better to have little with quietness rather than to, rather than to have a lot and be striving after wind. And he unpacks this for us uh, in verses 7 and 8. The problem of covetousness, the problem of loneliness, the problem of striving after what is vanity, after riches in and of themselves. Verse 7, Then I returned and saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone without companion. He has neither son nor brother, yet there is no end to all his labors, nor is his eye satisfied with riches. He works hard, but there is no wife. He works hard, but there is no children. He works hard, but there are no siblings. One of those career types of people. Well, I'm just going to worry about my career and then I'll think about family later on in life. But then I heard a sad stat recently that one third of adults in America live alone. The reality is we are not meant to be alone, dear brethren. But if, if we pursue uh, riches for the sake of riches, I understand there's a lot of other providential things that can lead to loneliness, but sometimes it can be for the sake of riches. Nor is his eye satisfied with riches, yet there is no end to all his labors, and he never thinks, for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This also is a vanity and a grave misfortune." His whole purpose in life was riches. We talked about the vanity of riches in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Riches in and of themselves aren't a bad thing. It's pursuing riches as an idol. And if one pursues riches and pleasures as an idol and neglects everything else in life, it only leads to toil and to sadness. What benefit is it if you can't share it with anyone? Riches can never satisfy. You just want more of it and more of it. You have this much in your bank account. You like that to increase more. You have this. You want more of that. It never, ever, ever satisfied. What benefit is there in all of life if you cannot share it with anyone? That's why companionship is a blessing, which is what we see in verses 9 through 12. Humans are not meant to live in isolation, are they? God looked at Adam and said to him, it is not good for man to be alone. And so he gave him Eve. We're not meant to be so disconnected. You think we'd be more connected in this social age, whatever we live in with all those gadgets that we have. But to some degree, we're more disconnected. We don't know how to talk. We don't know how to speak. We don't know how to engage uh, with people in general uh, I'm talking generally. Some of you are very good at that very thing. But just in general, societally, man was not meant to be alone. And so, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. Companions help each other out. Spouse, family, friends. We see if one falls, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. And again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. How can one be warm Alone. Now, this likely refers to husband and wife, but in the ancient Near Eastern world, people shared beds in non-sexual ways. We certainly see this with David when he's dying in 1 Kings chapter 1, but friends, family, protect and care for one another. Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. There is strength in numbers. 
Why be alone? Why be selfish when it is better to be two rather than one and a threefold cord is not quickly broken? There is no companion for the selfish. But thankfully, dear brethren, we have a great friend who is our God. And thankfully, if we are connected to our God, if we believed upon him, and if we are part of the church of Christ, then we hopefully have lots of uh, brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the main focus seems to be on a good God who does give good companions, who does give good friends. And brethren, one area we're not supposed to be envious is of our dear brothers and sisters in Christ. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy does it? It does not envy. And often we can be envious of the people across the pew. We think they have something that we want, that we think there's something in their life that they have that we don't. And so often we can be envious in that way. That's why the Bible tells us to mourn with those who mourn, dear brethren. When someone's struggling, we mourn with them. But if someone is rejoicing, we ought to rejoice with them as well. Isn't that hard to do? Isn't that a difficult thing to try and wrap your head around? If you're struggling, but someone's rejoicing, or if you're rejoicing and someone's struggling. But that's what the Bible tells us to do, to enter in with one another and to recognize the companions, companions God has given to us. And the most important thing to recognize, though, dear brethren, is that God really is our closest friend. That if all else fails, if we're thrown into a prison all, our, all alone, God shall be with us. He shall never leave us. He shall not forsake us. Some may say there is no companion for the selfish. There's always one who is near to his people. Don't forget that, dear brethren, when there are times when we might be alone. So that's no companion for the selfish. Let's then look thirdly and finally, no praise for the wise in verses 13 through 16. No praise for the wise. There's a lot of tough stuff in Ecclesiastes. Probably what's going on here in verses 3 through 16 is a wise youth versus a foolish king. And he's talking about how popularity fades away. So we come to that fourth better than saying better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who will be admonished no more. And so we have this image of a stubborn king. When one grows in power, when one grows in pride, when one grows in arrogance, one will no longer listen to what other people have to say. This is especially important in the ancient Near Eastern world because the kings were the ones who would lead their countries into battle. And if he didn't listen to good advice and he walked into a trap, it wasn't just his life that is on the line, but it's other lives that are on the line as well. He must listen. He must not be arrogant. He must weigh everything that is going on. So it's better to be have nothing it's better to be young and it's better to be wise than to be one with power and old and foolish king. Notice age does not always equal wisdom. We hope that that's the case. We hope we grow in wisdom. We hope we grow in understanding, but that is not always the case, is it? It is better to be young and poor and wise rather than old and foolish and a king who will be admonished no more. He won't listen he oppresses. Why? Because of rivalry, corruption, envy, and desire for power. The ability to listen is an attribute of the wise. 
And then verses 14 through 16 unpacks the rise of this poor and wise youth. For he, the youth, comes out of the prison to be king, although he has been poor in his kingdom. That's interesting. God raises up the poor and wise youth. But then verse 15, I saw all the living who walk under the sun, and they were with the second youth who stands in his place. Probably what's going on here is that that poor and wise king has risen to power, but his popularity fades away. There was no end of all the people over whom he was made king. He had it all, yet those who come afterward will not rejoice in him. He had his time. He had his shelf life. Even for a wise king, even for a good king, there was still a time when his popularity faded away. That can be hard for people as well. When they receive a lot of fanfare, when they receive a lot of recognition, then all of a sudden it just goes away, doesn't it? popularity fades away. And we have to deal with that, dear brethren, in our own lives. We have to recognize that very thing, that these things can occur. It can pass away. There was no end of all the people over whom he was made king, yet those who come afterward will not rejoice in him. They've forgotten him. They've forgotten that wise king. They've forgotten that good king. They forgot that kind king. And instead, they put this second youth who stands in his place. Surely this also is vanity and grasping for the wind. So as this one fades away, as this one passes away, his popularity fades away. And as our popularity fades away, not that we're that popular. I mean, we're Reformed Baptists, right? I mean, there's not many people that come in here, but that's just fine. I'm glad you all come in here, and I love all of you. Uh, But we're never going to be a church of 1.8 million people or 5,000 people or whatever. That's fine, dear brethren. We have to be faithful to what God has called us to do and recognize popularity fades away. But even as we grow, even as we fade, even as we are about to pass in this world, do we still not have that friend who walks with us? day by day. And even though our popularity might fade away, will he not one day lift us up in glory? See, there is comfort that God gives to all of his people. And it's a comfort to know that God will glorify his people when Christ comes again. We shall be conformed to Christ's heavenly body. We shall be raised with our self-same bodies and we shall reign with Christ world without end. It is comforting to know that when all popularity fades and all friends and family pass away, that there is a God who knows us and there is a God who loves us and a God who is with us in all of our suffering. Doesn't Jesus affirm in Acts 9, as I said this morning, that as he's speaking to Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? God is gracious. God is with his people and God is going to glorify himself in all that he does. He's going to glorify himself as his saints suffer. He's going to glorify himself as his saints care for one another. And he's going to glorify himself as he raises his saints from the dead and gives us a self same glorified body conformed to Christ's heavenly body. Shouldn't that give us comfort when we suffer? Shouldn't that give us comfort when we see oppression? Shouldn't that help us not to be envious 
and engage in rivalry with other people and knowing that our envy and rivalry are forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to our God in prayer. And if you're an unbeliever here today, believe on Christ. Because the reality is you have these same problems that we all go through as well in this present world. But you have such a friend as Jesus who you can go to with all your sins and griefs to bear. Believe on him. You shall be saved and find mercy and forgiveness in a God who helps you in the midst of all oppression in this world. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful that you are the sovereign king over all things. And as we come and consider the realities of this present world in which we live, there is much oppression. And it does seem like the power is on the side of the oppressors. It does seem, O oh Lord, that there are people who pursue riches and loneliness rather than things that are good. And it does seem that many who are wise and good, their popularity fades away. And help us to recognize, O oh God, that this is all according to your providential unfolding of all things. It's the outworking of your decrees. And we are thankful that we, your people, can put our faith and trust in you. Thank you for your comfort Thank you for your nearness. Thank you that we have a good friend in Christ our Lord, who is the captain of our salvation, who is our conquering king, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Thank you that he is the one who knows us and loves us and died for us and walks with us even now. Help us to remember this as we walk this present evil age. Give us strength, give us aid, give us help as we deal with perplexity and enigmas in the present world in which we live. Thank you that there is comfort. Thank you that there is companionship. And thank you that there is praise that comes from you. And we pray that you be honored and glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, for our final hymn, we're going to sing the doxology. If you need, the words are at the front of the blue trendy hymnal. Roman numeral XVI, Roman numeral 16. We'll stand and sing the doxology. grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you've suffered a while perfect establish strengthen and settle you to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever amen well we'll close with a brief time meditation the piano's finished you are dismissed <laughs>